Hey folks, this is Dr. Scott. I'm here with my bestie and co-host. Hey, it's Dr. Shiloh. Welcome back welcome. to LA Not So. Yeah, welcome back. <laughs> We're a little rusty, Scott? it feels He's... like. When, when did I see you last? How, how do we start this again? <laughs> I know. I know. You haven't so seen sorry. me. You haven't. I think we've been doing a lot of other recordings together, but Wait, I we I, I think you came by the office a week and a half ago and we socially distanced. Didn't yes. we get something off? Yes. Yeah. I had something for you and you had something for me too. And we caught up a little bit in the hallway yeah. <laughs> with the masks on. <laughs> but we're like literally texting every single day. But I know. This, yeah. It's weird, you know, pandemic time when it like just all of the, you know, for you and I, because we're still in the workforce, I'm currently telecommuting again. And then at the end of this week, I'll be going back into cycle. Well, yeah, you're actually quarantined again because you had an exposure, right? Well, potential exposure. Okay, yeah. okay. Well, but I've but no symptoms and um, tested, and we'll, well, I haven't gotten the results of the test back. Which, by the way, like mm-hmm. how freaking frightening is it that people that are completely asymptomatic are ending up having symptoms like three months later? Everything is bonkers about it's it. Bonkers. I mean, you know. People getting it again, people not retaining um, the antibodies in their plasma. Like we, I'm convinced we just, we know nothing about it, which means we should be even more cautious Yeah, because who knows, but it's a scary, it's a scary time to think like, I mean, and you called it months ago when you were talking about like being scared of people having mask fatigue and fatigue to the whole, you know, incident. And, you know, those, there's those of us that are parents that don't know what to do with our kids in a few months and if their schools are going to allow them in person or, you know, distance learning. And there's a lot to consider. Well, and all the pressures that are on, I mean, that's a lot of the memes that are being distributed now that are incredibly on point and poignant about what they're expecting educators to do. Right. Like just this, I want, we want you to prepare for every possible iteration of education for the absent yeah. learner, the in present in the present learner. But I mean it's just hybrid. Crazy. Yeah, it is. It is. I have a couple of clients that are educators with uh, elementary school kids and it's a lot of pressure right now. Yeah. They just want to do their job just like all of us. But yeah, my work from home is done. I'm back as of the last week, I'm back working full time regular. So we'll see though how things I miss go. it. I mean like I with you know I unfortunately will go too much into workflow when I have no outside stimulus. So I'll sit down and start doing case management and evaluations and record review and not move for four hours, which is not good because the next day I pay for it. I'm exhausted. Whereas in an office, I'm up around, collaborate, sit down, work, you know, and I know right. that doesn't work for everybody. Some people, this, what I'm experiencing right now would be optimum for them, but it's not optimum for me. I'm yeah. productive, but I'm exhausted. So Yeah. Yeah. There's a trade-off for sure. But I, I want to thank everybody for bearing with us with just kind of our, we've had a sort of like a funky schedule lately. We put out those two episodes back to back. And then we sort of skipped a week of our normal schedule, but um, I think we're back on schedule. There's also some... We have been... We've been busy though. Yeah. If you follow our social media, we've been doing a ton of other like guest spots on other podcasts. So the most recent I did, um, it's it's basically a 
a law enforcement podcast, but it is just these phenomenal people that I got to know in 2007, and they run the top-notch firearms shooting school here in the LA area. And they started a podcast to really talk about um, both the focus on sworn and civilian, how to be responsible, um, and to hear from different people in the field. And so we talk about a lot of different issues. We talked about like after an officer-involved shooting, we talked about sort of just the state of police officers right now and with COVID and with, um, you know, a lot of the civil unrest that they went through as well as, you know, what's sort of the future of policing, which was super interesting. Um, and that's called With Deadly Force is the podcast. Um, and then I did another one with a friend of mine named Jackie. She has a podcast called Command Your Life. And she and I know each other because our husbands work together. Um, but she's just a phenomenal woman and she's a military, she's not a veteran. She's a current member of the military. Um, and is just really trying to bring some leadership to women through this podcast. Um, and then I did murderish with Jamie. I hope you guys all listened to that. We had a really great conversation about an incident that happened to Jamie when, you know, she was a teen and kind of broke that down a little bit. Um, Which is so interesting because you and I haven't had a chance to talk about that. Yeah. I love listening to it. Cause I mean, for one thing, she's, Jamie's such a phenomenal person to begin with. And her show is just fascinating. It's very, it's very different from other true crime podcasts in a way mm-hmm. that is fascinating to me. She has this, it, you know, captivating voice and narrative style that is so good. And then for her to kind of take a slight break from it to talk with you about this incident she went through, so great. Yeah, it was so a lot great. of fun. It was a lot of fun. But you and I together have done, we did Criminal Perspective. Chris just had us on to kind of gab about our show, but it was so much fun. He's such a great interviewer. I kept thinking he was just going to go like, okay, I got to cut these two off because they yeah. won't shut up. You stop like, talking, you're, please. Please. You're just and I love that he gave on. you shit too. <laughs> <laughs> And then we have two coming up. So um, stay tuned for a podcast called The Dad's Doomsday Guide. And it's just that this um, Scott is the host. So this this can get very confusing. Lots of Scott's going on. Um, But he kind of talks about all the things that terrify parents. So we're like, hey, we can help you out with that. (laughs) Um, So we talk about a lot of sex offender related stuff. And then uh, soon we should be on the Voices for Justice podcast with Sarah Turney. And we know that obviously a lot of our listeners are really passionate about Alyssa's case and Sarah's cause. And we, well, we've been, and we've been wanting to do that. I mean, not just us, but Sarah, we've been trying to make that happen for almost nine months now. I mean, it's been going on for a long time. And then right several times, right as we were about to record with her big shifts in, in her work and Mm -hmm. moving the case forward have happened. And yeah, I like, I'm just impressed by like looking back at all these examples you just gave, what a great opportunity we've had to collaborate with all these people. And also how freaking awesome are they all? They're just I great know. people. And, and I love, yeah, we, we always talk about how we've met the greatest people, but I love that this feels, um, I don't know. It's a little bit of everything. It's not all true crime. It, it, 
it's kind of varied. It doesn't feel like the same thing over and over again. Um, you know, of course we're always asked to like tell our story so that that doesn't change much, but you know, the reason people are bringing us on just, they have the best concepts and things that they want to know about. So I hope we uh, serve them all well in all of our guest spots. So one thing that has happened that I just think is notable, even though we're, you know, more than halfway through the month of uh, July, I did want to put a pin in this because I'll be gone in the dark is broadcasting now, which is a slow burn and a great story because it's not just about the killer. It's about this person who is a, is an amazing talent married to another amazing talent and comes from, some challenging background herself and is very raw about it. And not only that, but that on the 29th, the golden state killer actually confessed um, in order to avoid guilt. Yeah. yeah, Admitted guilt in order to avoid the death penalty. Right. So uh, that's kind of huge. That's kind of huge. Yeah. It's, it's definitely big right now. Um, Are you caught up on the series? I'm caught up so far. And, you know, I thought that like a lot of people, I found the first episode to be a little slow. Maybe because I, maybe they designed it to be a little slower to, to ease people in that aren't necessarily sort of steeped in the genre. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. Or, you know, if you've read the book, then it, it feels very much the same done beautifully because Liz Garbus does great work. But what else you've been watching? Did you finish the Zac Efron series? I have not started it, but <laughs> what? Like I haven't started it. Who are you? Other, well, I found there's also like a BBC series that somebody turned me on to that is just amazing called called Marcella. Oh yeah, Marcella's great. Have you seen it? I watched the first series. Oh my god, I just season, watched. Yeah. I just finished the first season and it's so good. So many yeah. twists. Really yeah, great twists. Yeah, my yeah, husband Zach actually Af- watched down to earth with Zach Efron first. He binged the entire series in like a weekend and I'm going through it now, but it was kind of funny because you were sending me all those memes and everything about yeah the evolution that. of like, right. you know, from, from skinny t- twink to, you know, hairy daddy. It was right. really funny. Yeah, it is pretty funny. <laughs> Good, and you know what? Good for him. Good for him for doing a, a project that has a meaning and is engaging totally. so many people. That's super cool. No, it is very cool. So I guess, you know, two episodes ago, we had a very ambitious outline because w- this is going to be part three of our internet facilitated sexual offenses. Um, and this was all originally in the same outline. I don't know how we thought we were going to do that, but um, here we are in I know. three parts. <laughs> and well, we always do that. It's like, oh God, I'm how, how are we going to have enough material to talk? We I can't know. fill up an episode. And then it's like, oh geez, so we got to cut it. I know. So what we're going to do is part three is really going to be focused on internet solicitation. So think... We're, we're kind of moving past like the child sexual abuse images and the other types of like sexual tourism that we covered in part one. Um, and it's going to be the guys that get online and start chatting with underage people, kids, either because that's part of like their fantasy, that's their thing, or more often it's because they want to actually meet up in public in public and commit a contact offense in real life. Right. I think one of the things that's super important about today's episode or today's topic is that we're going to start from sort of a seminal moment 
um, in 2004, which started really more of a nationwide and then worldwide awareness mm-hmm. of this type of stuff, which then led to people becoming more educated on this issue. But Right. You know, we're talking about almost like the granddaddy of this big explosion of this information. This is not necessarily part of the public vernacular ever, no. I don't think, even no. given the satanic panic in the 80s and those kind of things. This is this sort of came to life in the early 2000s. Yeah, definitely. You have um, a generation of parents that had not had technology like the internet in their life for very long. And then you have kids who are about the age where they've had it in their life or they're very steeped in it. Um, and so there's sort of this, this divide of, um, naivete and not knowing, you know, necessarily what kids are doing online or what the dangers are. And I think we've said this probably in the other parts, but Whatever criminal offenses have been out there before the internet, the offenders will find a way to do it via the internet, you know, whether it's white collar crime, um, theft types crimes, or if it's sex crimes or finding children. Um, So, yeah, this is definitely uh, something that... I think we're going to go back on the Dad's Doomsday Guide (laughs) podcast to talk about this specifically because... It is to a point now where you think it's it's one of parents' worst nightmares, and we hear the stories of, you know, the teen girl that leaves in the middle of the night and is gone to go meet up with somebody that she met online. Yeah. Um, I do want to say at the top of this, and we're going to get more into the offender specifics in a little bit, um, but there is two categories that researchers have put these solicitation offenders in. There's the fantasy-driven and then there's the contact driven. So they are able to have enough research to know that there is a subset of offenders. And I'm going to say guys, because it's, it's majority men that get online and they chat with kids and it may sound like they want to meet up in person, but there is a a subset that don't ever do that. Um, and it is just to keep that fantasy going. We, and Scott talked a lot about fantasy, the roles of fantasy, I think in part two of this series. And then there is the contact-driven offenders who, yes, it's like a means to the end. They want to identify people who will meet them in line so they can sexually assault these underage people in person. But um, let's talk about To Catch a Predator. Well, that's what I meant. That's what I was kind of hinting at is, you know, To Catch a Predator is a show that was an offshoot of Dateline, which was already an established and popular show. And it's funny because... It's one of those shows that was such a big impact on the culture that it wasn't really on as long as people think it was. Right. It was only on uh, between, I think, November 2004 and December 2007. And it featured, I think, a total of 12 investigations that were all within the U.S. But you would think that because it still has so much life and it's become sort of part of our culture that it's been going on this, this entire time. And it hasn't. It's been 13 years. So when you say 12 investigations, do you mean like, like that would be the city they set up in? And then like, is that? That's my understanding. There were a lot more that were covered. And also they were collaborating with an organization that Mm -hmm. was sort of an assortment of people from all over the country and all walks of life that came together under, uh, you know, sort of a self-styled watchdog group called Perverted Justice. Um, We're going to talk about whether or not 
that necessarily was a good thing. I mean, that that collaboration, you know, even the name Perverted Justice becomes a little bit ironic because of some of the decisions that that group made over that yeah. time. You know, there's a, you know, did they, in, did they in fact pervert justice in pursuing some of these things? That's so, so interesting. I didn't know that was the name of the group. And I have a book called Perverted Justice, and it's about sort of what we talked about in part one and part two about the, um, the laws not really meeting the crime, like being out of date with what the crimes used to be, especially for possession of child pornography. And it's all about how, you know, the criminal justice system is just not caught up and can be bordering on cruel and unusual punishment um, when it comes to sex crimes. So that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll refer back to it and certainly there's a lot of, Sir, oh, and one of the big things is please go listen to two podcasts that touch on this issue that are so awesome. I, I, I can't even tell you how much I admire these people, but the, our, our two uh, colleagues over at Yeah, No, Yeah did a great episode on To Catch a Predator and Chris Hansen and also um, Chris Duet at Criminal Perspective has a fantastic interview with the actress that played one of the uh, young girls on right. To Catch a Predator. Decoy. A decoy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's um, great. He just released that too. So literally we compliment each other's shows so well, I keep saying. Yeah, it's and it's such a, he does a great job there. I mean, I just, once again, I'm so impressed by the people we collaborate with because I see there's just a lot of talent there. Look, I, you know, I have had a shift um, in the way I look at To Catch a Predator because 2003, 2004 was the beginning of my studies in, in, uh, as uh, getting a master's in psychology. This whole world was unknown to me. Like I didn't, I just didn't have a lot of exposure. And I remember watching it drop, drop, drop jawed going, oh my God, I can't believe these guys right. are doing this. And I did not have sort of the contextual awareness to see that there are some things that were actually even more disturbing than I saw on the surface and also disturbing about the entire setup. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. at the time, it was like, you know, watching cops in a way, you know, like it was that kind of it was visceral very, yeah. titillation, you know? Oh, well, I think people got great glee out of watching it. You know, just this, I mean, back then I was still working as an officer. I was in graduate school, but I thought it was great. I think, you know, the satisfaction of seeing someone commit a crime and then getting caught and being held to answer right then and there, there's something very satisfying about that. Um, and knowing they're not going to run away and, you know, you have to do an investigation and go arrest them down the line later on. It was like, boom, here it is. And then we get to see the end result. Well, and I think, yeah, because where you are right there is it feels very clean cut. Yeah. yeah until your understanding, until your understanding expands and you're like, oh, this is, this is actually kind of squeegee on a number of levels, not just, you know, not necessarily having sympathy for, for the perpetrators. It's not that it's just, that's the whole thing about sort of, um, the concept of justice is like everybody cheers for the, the res resolution of a crime involving the perpetrator who is on the lowest rungs of the ladder. And the lowest rungs of the ladder are child predators. Right. right. Understandably so. We get yep. it because they are, they are going after the most vulnerable of our society. But we as sort of having a social contract with 
our justice system and the world that we live in and the nation we live in is, you know, you got to be really careful about being incredibly gleeful about someone dancing on the edge of justice because that could turn around and slap you in the face almost just as easily. Like, sure, you know, sure. any of us, I mean, certainly n- neither of us is planning on you know, taking a pizza to meet an underage child, like we're right. just not going to do that. Right. But, you know, it, it kind of, you know, if you, the more you sit down and think about it, like it's, there's some things that are concerning. Oh, definitely. I mean, once we got into working in this realm, I mean, literally with these types of offenders, you start thinking about things like, okay, well, you know, technically they're not convicted yet. So <laughs> even though it's very damning and computer evidence of all of these crimes we've talked about in this series are pretty rock solid. Um, but still there's, there's, I don't know. It always gives me that weird feeling when, you know, someone is highlighted on the news and their picture of being arrested for something and they have not been convicted yet. You know, there's right. this. And this by that, and the damage nature. is done like at that yes. point, you know, yes. when it's out, it's, you know, it's your, and there are some people that are, you know, depending on the charge, they're never, they're never going to recover from it, you know, as opposed to it's interesting. It's like, it depends on what, sort of what world you live in. If you live in Hollywood and you're a really high-powered executive, it may take decades for that to come oh, back, yeah. you know? Sure, sure. It's, I remember when I was working in, it's either San Bernardino or Riverside County, and my one of my clients brought in this little magazine that they would sell at like gas stations and liquor stores, and you could buy it for a dollar. And it had... I forget what it was called. Gosh, now I need to look it up. But it would have like photo um, booking photos of like everyone arrested for DUI in the last month. And then at the back, he brought it in because he was in there as one of the registered sex offenders that lived in the area. Wow. And it said... um, it said like wanted across his picture, which clearly he wasn't. He was out on parole. He was in treatment, but he's like, what if I get beat down by somebody when I go to Walmart? Because this says wanted across my name right now. I'm not wanted every, you know, I'm where I'm supposed to be. Um, But it's just like those sort of things. And it was like this little vigilante type watchdog group that had started up this publication. And I just think like, again, if I'm you know, if you're someone who gets a DUI and is an otherwise very decent person and makes a mistake and your picture is now in, you know, the page next to the, it was really gross, but. Um, well, we've also know. know just from many studies that shaming people doesn't work. It's not a deterrent right. from others engaging in the behavior. I mean, it just, it just doesn't, it never, it never bears out in studies that way. Um, you know, when it comes to catch, to catch a predator, one of the things I mean, certainly the majority of those episodes that I remember, and I even went back and I was on YouTube today scanning a lot of them and going, oh, that guy, yeah, that guy. You know, many of them led to convictions, um, but a significant number did not lead to convictions because because they messed it up. It's like even with all the cameras and all the prep and all the preparation and Chris Hansen swaggering in the way he did, they still screwed it up badly. And, you know, how, so how is justice served in that way? But the one that sticks with me the most is the guy, there's a guy that shows up twice. He's been busted twice on it. Yeah. Right. So he comes in the second time and Chris Hansen is like, you were here before, you know, sort of this incredulous. And for, I mean... 
I was looking at that going, uh, well, clearly this person is, has, uh, intellectual deficits. Sure. To the point where there may even have been, um, developmental delay. There was something going on. So how is he served? Mm-hmm. Like, h- how was that served? Should he have been engaging in that behavior? Absolutely not. Did he understand that he was engaging in behaviors that he shouldn't have been engaging in? I don't know. Most likely he did have the capacity to understand that it was wrong. But in right. any other le- legal proceeding, we would look at intellectual capability and developmental disability as factors. Absolutely. If those were factors in him, I'm just saying from looking at it, those were things that made me think of it because clearly he wasn't firing on all, all cylinders. But then again, well, neither, neither was the tweaker that came in. in the episode. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's the, the factors like those for the reason why that person might be doing it. You know, what's lending to their decision-making, I guess is a good way to say it. And then there's the piece of, do we need to put that case on TV and be exploitative about it for entertainment? Because they could have said like, hey, let's consult with someone, see what's going on here, maybe with this guy, maybe we leave this one out. But when you're weighing, ooh, this guy came back twice, like that's going to be super juicy. Um, well, yeah, look, sure there's also pressure. Win. As somebody who's worked in entertainment, they're Chris's guest, oh, I'm blanking on her name. What's her name? The actress. I, I don't remember. I'm name. so sorry. I'm blanking on it. That's you okay. were wonderful. I'm blanking on your name. Anyway, Chris's uh, guest was talking about like the length of time. I mean, here she is. She's 18. She's just turned 18. So she's an adult to be in somewhat of a dangerous situation um, with some coaching from the police there. But they're sitting around waiting for hours and hours. But you don't see that on any reality show is everything is edited so that it's constantly engaging your attention as opposed to what is really going on. And and, in most reality shows, certainly not so much ones that are news based um, or criminal based is like, there's also a shifting of the narrative that is done in the editing room. So for those of you that are housewives fans or Kardashian fans, like, I hope, you know, that's not real. None of that is real. I think, you know, the other piece of us that liked it so much is because these crimes are so horrific and we think who would be the guy doing this? And so this gives us a window into who they maybe are. I mean, obviously it's a terrible um, sample of the population and um, that's what Dr. Scott and I are going to bring you a little bit more of today is, is maybe what mental illness is going on with these individuals or who, what they've done in the past as far as crimes and shape a little bit more about who they are. Right. So one thing that I just wanted to frame the rest of the episode with is talking about ethics and, you know, just, just sort of like, so that we're all sort of on the same page about what, what does ethics mean? Um, Because I think it's one of those terms really that people kind of throw around is, is that ethical without really understanding, you know, what it is. And their entire degrees built around the concept of ethics. And, you know, the study of ethics is basically an attempt to cover big life dilemmas. It's about moral decisions. What is good versus what is bad? What are our individual rights and responsibilities in the pursuit of life 
understanding what is good or bad. How do we live a good life? How do we as humans language or express our views of right versus wrong? And so looking at it at its most basic, its most simple, ethics is a system of moral principles. And they affect how we make decisions and lead our lives. So we look at what is good for individuals versus society and good for society. And we look at it sort of a larger encapsulated in moral philosophy. And our our concept of ethics generally have been derived from religions, philosophies, cultural, um, cultural situations, and in large cultural and political and sociological debates like topics like, I mean, we're talking about like sort of the, the red button issues like abortion, human rights, and professional conduct. So, so I just wanted to kind of touch on that as like looking at the big picture of having television shows around catching quote unquote predators and certainly, and I'm not letting anybody off the hook for any behaviors, but like, are we really helping to address this issue in our society and keep it from happening altogether by making it entertainment? Right. And I would say that, no, that's not what <laughs> they were doing or what their their goal is. And yeah. to even, you know, I, and I don't know what the percentage is, but to say like how many people did get convictions and how many did they flub because, you know, whatever loop legal loopholes, because this was something that was on television or right. um, the investigation, quote unquote, wasn't done properly. So yeah, it, it seems like that's a, a big no as far as uh, whether or not they consulted anyone on ethics before jumping into this. But uh, I don't know. Are there any other tele- or they had a couple spinoffs, right? That weren't that were like um, to catch up. Well, it actually, I mean, fraud or I don't know. A couple, yeah, I mean, they, they, they tried like for one, they tried having a spinoff. I mean, they had to end it because, you I mean, know, a, a you know, this is related to the work that you and I did in internship is that they caught a guy in the sting, got him to engage in the text messages. And, but then at the last minute, he backed out. He was not going to do a physical meeting. Right. And this was where it all went bad is they went to the guy's house in yeah. Texas. He was a district attorney and he blew his brains out. He right. Like basically my life is over, blew his brains out. Now, once all the shit went down, they go through the guy's computer and they find a lot of child pornography. So the guy was, was breaking the law. Sure. But did he break the law in that particular instance by engaging in this chat and this solicitation and then not actually going to do it? And then was Chris Hansen and his crew in the right by going and basically doing a door knock? That right. was so badly it's, done. Yeah, it's the actions of the television show directly contributed to this man taking his own life rather than, you know, it it happening in a a different way, maybe a way that could have been more structured to um, account for less harm. But um, But yeah, yeah. yeah, no, yeah. If you please listen to their episode. It's great. It's really good. It's hilarious. It's cheeky. It's everything you expect from those ladies. So, um, okay, good. Great opening. Let's talk about online grooming because we've talked about grooming in real life and what that looks like and what we all sort of think of that to be. But 
how would you groom somebody if you're doing it online? And like I said, there's a way to do it in real life. They'll be able to find a way to do it over the internet. So generally there's a, the first point of contact and that can be, you know, if it was 2004, it might be an AOL chat room. <laughs> it might be some sort of, you know, place where people who are anonymous are kind of just chatting and then um, meeting online. Now, I think it's very much going to be through social media and uh, direct messages um, I guess it could be through email if somebody has access to somebody's email address, but some sort of point of contact. And usually now with social media, you know, you can follow somebody for a while, you can see what they're doing, you can see what their interests are, you can gauge so much about what they're they're doing in life and who they are and uh, where they are too. So it's, it is still very possible for a predator to be able to size up a victim and maybe even know how much parental supervision there is based on what they're doing and engaging in. Um, are they talking about things being bad at home, you know, even just through sad emojis or, you know, this is how I'm feeling today or my life is so hard or my parents suck or whatever. That's all intel. Again, remember we talked about how how child sexual offenders are really good at picking out the broken kid and then, you know, using all the tactics to make them feel loved and giving them attention. This can all be done online. Um, and in so some you, ways it, it's done easier online. It feels less um, intrusive. I mean, it's ex- just exactly, exactly. You have like, there's the disinhibition of the anonymity part of it, of, of, Oh, this person's really listening to me, and they're, you know, they're basically using, you know, psych clinical skills one oh one oh one by reflecting back. Oh man, that sound your parents sound like they suck. Yeah. That kind of thing to engage the uh, victim. Exactly, exactly. I in one of um, I don't know. Gosh, maybe I talked about this. Just edit this out if I talked about this already in the last couple. But I had. Um, I had been asked by an employer, I'll just say that, of of some sort to go through some text messages because they were concerned that one of their employees had been texting with an underage girl and they wanted just my opinion of what was going on. Um, And even though there was no deliberate statements about them having sex, I went through and I picked out essentially how he was grooming her via text message. So he would... Um, begin to mimic her style of talk. And this is like a man in his mid-30s as opposed to this like, you know, 16, 17-year-old girl. He would use emojis back in the way she did. Um, And so it was just so interesting to see his, see him replicate even to make himself feel less scary and like appear to her through just simply text messages. It was really interesting because at first Which I'm like, is deliberate. Oh, completely. Yeah, I'm like, no way. Yeah. yeah from a what treatment. am I going to get from exactly. text messages? And then it was like, Whoa, it just all popped out to me. It was very fascinating. Um, so yeah, it, it usually starts as sort of light conversation. Um, and you know how I said that there's fantasy driven, there's contract, Con, why can I say that? Contact-driven uh, offenders. If if the offender wants to take a little time with it and be smooth and do some grooming, they'll start with the really 
light conversation, nothing that feels too um, scary to the child. But there's others who will just directly go to like throwing sexual inquiries out there because they want to get through and see who responds. They're literally just like, okay, let me see if this freaks her out. Okay, it does. Move on to the next one. And we'll just be very direct with some of their... So it could be like a picture. It could be like, I'm going to send them a sexual you know, maybe a dick pic or, you know, some sort of sexually explicit thing and see how they respond. So I'm, I'm, I'm completely uneducated on this then. Um, cause I wasn't aware of that particular differentiation. So do we know anything that is particularly dichotomous about those two, the person who just basically is you know, throwing dynamite in the water and seeing how many fish it kills, you know, move on, move on, move on versus the one who is laying a trap. Not necessarily like one, one isn't indicative of the fantasy and one isn't necessarily indicative of the contact because they both can be doing that because even the contact offender, if it's all about fantasy and they're like in the mood and want to have this conversation when they sit down at their computer, they might just be like, okay, who can I get to in this next hour that's willing to talk with me about this stuff? Okay. Um, or it can be the person that wants to meet a child in real life and is like, all right, who is already maybe sexually active or not scared off by this stuff that will indulge me in this kind of talk right off the bat? So there, and, and when we go through typologies, we'll talk about how it's sort of broken down by how much time and effort they put into building these relationships. So when it, when it is the lighter conversation, they will generally steer the conversation towards things like problems that maybe the kids are having common interests, um, music, uh, you know, whatever, um, that they can just start talking randomly about, which is what a lot of people do online. Um, then they will start gathering info about family and friends to get an idea for what their situation is. Oh, are you in school? Are you um, are you distance learning right now? Oh, that must be really hard because like, are your parents still working? And you know, it it's just information gathering, and kids are not realizing how much information they're giving up just by having friendly chatter, especially nowadays because that's how they converse with all of their right. social support anyway. And there's and, also probably an overload. I mean, parents, everybody being quarantined, especially in the U S the rest of the world is getting back to normal life, but we're not, uh, right. that's a whole other discussion, but the idea that there's a, a level of sort of fatigue that everyone is experiencing where, you know, are you being as vigilant about monitoring your child's internet access as you were, three and a half months ago. Right. Right. Yep. And there are articles saying that the predators know that kids are online. And so they're more active because they know their, their pool has gotten that much bigger to where they can, oh, that's um, terrifying. you know, have more people to try and entice. You know, I wanted to, did you, you remember, do, do you know the case of John James Kirby, the guy from Paradise, California? Oh gosh, the last name sounds familiar. It's recent and he got 29 years. It's really fascinating. This was a guy, they they did one of, I know they did a whole dedicated show on him, episode of one of the shows on Investigation Discovery, but John James Kirby, 23 years old, and he ran a, terrible, terrible scam on girls between the ages of 11 and 15. 
by um, grooming them by promising that he was looking that he was a, a model scout, and it would start out with you know sort of pretending to be somebody else, and rather than go about the other kind of sort of peer age group, what he did was he would send them pictures of cash and like, I do this for 17 magazine and tiger beat and these different kind of things and get them to start sending pictures. And each Mm -hmm. picture would get progressively more until he finally got enough of a, of a shot that included enough nudity where then he would immediately turn around and threaten to, uh, it would blackmail yeah. into giving more, and wow. uh, giving more um, shots. And he was only found out he was absolutely, you know, victimizing so many girls, and only was found out when one parent went through her daughter's uh, computer. IMs mm. and then reported it to the FBI and the FBI set up a sting, but it had been going on for about four years. And oh, God. the guy's just like, you look at his picture. He is an eminently punchable guy, like just <laughs> looks like a douchey dude, bro. And he got, I mean, this is one where you go 29 years. Good. I hope you do okay. every single one of those 29 years. Yeah. And they interview okay the, 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 there's a young woman now and she's a college in college, but she does national speaking engagements as the one who really was blackmailed the worst. Mm. And, you know, and he, and also the, the increasing pressure to do more and more sexually explicit things on camera for him, but then that then he sold as child pornography. It was just a terrible racket. Wow. And there's some bad people out there. Awful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Again, you know, there are these people that build up by asking about problems and gathering intel, but some also try to get to the sexual stuff pretty early. Um, You know, so again, maybe a sort of veiled comment or questions about, you know, has they ever had sex with anyone just to really gauge again, you know, remember we were talking about grooming before of like, okay, so if you put your hand on the knee of a child to see what their reaction is. This is sort of same thing. Like, let me ask about this and see if they clam up or if they answer me back. And then again, it's just another way to kind of wedge their foot in the door. And that that's how grooming starts. Um, and then eventually what they do is they will take it offline um, to phone calls. So I think this is something that is probably now, I don't have information on this, but going by the wayside more, because if you think about the 2000s, a lot of people would talk online, but then it would move to like, okay, let's talk on the telephone because people were still used to talking on the telephone. And then it felt a little safer because, okay, now I can hear this person's voice. Um, So I think it's either moving to phone calls or it might be moving now. I would put in place here, like if I was doing this presentation now, um, some sort of video chat. Yeah. Um, so, because if you can see someone, if you can hear their voice, um, teenagers aren't great at sizing people up, but they think they are, and this might make them feel better if they're thinking, you know, who is this person? If they agree to some sort of conversation again, that is kind of light and surface level conversation. They may continue the grooming there, get a little bit more personal, um, maybe even try to groom them into some phone sex if they seem approachable to that. 
Um, and then eventually there will be the request to meet in person. And I know this is happening online without even the 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 phone calls. You know, there's these meetups that are being planned just via the internet. Um, but it's it eventually moves to that point for the contact driven offenders for the online grooming so and solicitation. Who are they? Like what what do we what do we know about that population? Well, um, so again, all across the board, as far as, you know, there, there really is no one that escapes this as far as breaking it down demographically by race or age or, um, you know, SES, things like that. I mean, I've sat in a room that is incredibly diverse with just groups of men of solicitation offenders. I think it's really interesting to look at one criminal history and then also um, psychologically what's going on with them, because that's kind of like the why, like what's, what is going on with this person? Can it just be somebody that I know? Um, so a a very small percentage of them, about 5%, have zero criminal history. They've never done anything else before, never been caught for anything else before, I should say. Um, True. Good distinction. Right, right. Um, but about a third of them self-report that they have had a prior contact offense. So they haven't been caught for it because we're at like 5% people have been caught for it. But when they get caught, they are admitting about a third of them are admitting that they've they've had some sort of contact offense before. So wow. they aren't this is these aren't first timers. Um when they are arrested, there's a good percentage of them, like you were giving with the example on to catch a predator, that have possession of child sexual abuse images. It ranges between 20 and 40%, depending on the study that you look at. Um which is interesting because we find with the solicitation offenders that they tend to really focus on like that 13 to 15 year old age for their victims. So to me, especially today, that falls into post-pubescence. Um, so we're talking about hippophiles here. We're not talking necessarily about a large chunk of, of pedophiles those interested in prepubescent children, they're interested in adolescents, teenagers. So I, I believe we've talked about this before, but it, again, it's very natural and normal to be for a heterosexual man to be attracted to a teenage girl because she's postpubescent, secondary sex characteristics. Hence, that's where the name hebephile comes from because Hebe was either the Greek or the Roman sort of teenage go- goddess of the hearth. So it was oh, like okay. this, this little, this home goddess that was sort of, you know, uh, like the assistant to the mother goddess, you know, keeping the hearth clean or something in the kitchen basically. So it was like, right. I think that's where that specific age description comes from. I love always know all these root words <laughs> in mythology. <laughs> I hope I'm right because you know what, you know, I, by the way, you also just caught me because I, I refer, I did the, I really screwed up earlier and I referred to CP as child pornography and it's not, it is like you said, we've talked about this in previous issues, not issues, episodes. It is child sex abuse images, images, right? So let me, you know, I take responsibility for not using the correct terminology there. Yeah. The, the only time that I, say child pornography is really when I'm talking about like the 
the penal code section or like what they're charging them with. Cause that is still how the language is and the law. Um, but otherwise I, I do try and really stick to child sexual abuse images. Um, but that's okay. I forgive you. And, um, we can move on. Um, so yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, and, and it makes sense, right? I mean, if, if you're a solicitation offender and you're wanting to contact someone online and hoping that they will meet you in person, you know, how is like an eight-year-old going to get to the motel? (laughs) You know, you know what I mean? So like, they're, they're really like this age group makes sense because, a teenager can get a ride from a friend or can take a bus or can walk and it's not going to tip off everybody in the world. So, so it's just, it, it is really people again, who have sort of this fixation because here on one hand, I say it's natural and normal for heterosexual men to be attracted to this age group, but then you have this paraphilic group of hebophiles where it is it is their their sexual preference. So if you said, okay, would you like to date a 21-year-old woman, a 35-year-old woman, a teenage girl, or an eight-year-old child, they would be like, give me the teen. So it's they might be sexually attracted to post-pubescent women, but they prefer that teenage age range. So that's why we have it as its own distinction because right. that is their preference above anything else. Um, so yeah, this, and I, I had several clients that were very open about like, yes, this is what I prefer. This is, um, you know, who I am the most sexually attracted to. And it was very easy to get online and get girls to meet me. And a lot of, I thought it was really enlightening to hear what a lot of them had to say where it, it wasn't as if they were finding, you know, these these girls that needed so much convincing that they were spending a ton of time online, but they really said, you know, these were girls that were like, oh, cool, you're 30. Okay, I'm down with that. And we would talk about that because we, one, I never wanted my clients to engage in any victim blaming, but I would pose the question to them, okay, what about this young girl do you think made her have that mindset. And we will never know because she's not here, but how can we, and I was trying to grow some victim empathy, like, and they would come up with stuff. Maybe she was sexually abused. Maybe she, you know, had all this other stuff going on that was not appropriate for her age. And that made her uh, the perfect victim for me. So it was interesting to really have these conversations because I think we always go to just like the sort of, you know, the, the wholesome person sitting behind a computer being roped in by this really bad guy where it is much more gray than, than that. And again, not but gray in the way that like, right. But gray in the sense that there's a reason that a person, a young person might agree to that kind of meeting and it's not victim blaming, but it's about looking at how that individual could have gotten there to think that that's okay. Well, and yeah, I mean, that's victimology, right? We're looking at the factors of why that person ended up being in that position of, of generally no fault of their own. So, 
so that's that's kind of who the guys are as far as their arrest history, who they're focusing on. Um, about half of them suffer from a major mental disorder. So things that were, and, and it was, it's across the spectrum. I mean, a major mental disorder can be a lot of different things. Substance abuse disorder was very common. So you were commenting earlier about, you know, tweakers not in their right mind <laughs> uh, making these decisions, or, you know, it could have been something like adjustment disorder, which is, you know, something fairly benign that lots of people and, go through in and their transient. Lives. Yeah. Like it might yeah. be a life situation that's impaired their, their decision-making. Sure. Sure. Um, also about half of them had personality disorders. The most common were avoidant personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder. And that completely makes sense to me. Cause when you're looking at something, well, I mean, actually sort of what we used to call the cluster Avoidant isn't cluster B, but right. is it cluster B? No. no. Um, but the the cluster B uh, personality disorders make complete sense because those are personality do- disorders that either cannot empathize with other individuals around them, are severely impaired by empathizing with those around them, or consistently misinterpret uh-huh. The emotional motivations yeah, that's of huge. other people. So that completely fits into this. If you're misinterpreting it or you're just not even capable, there's, there's, some, there's some great interviews with um, hardcore psychopathic serial killers uh, on YouTube. And I don't like Piers Morgan at all, but I, he has done some interesting interviews. And he's a psychopathic serial killer? Well, he's... <laughs> He's something. <laughs> certainly a narcissist, but um, he does this thing where he talks to a couple of like really, really guys who have committed horrific serial crimes. And he'll say, you know, well, what do you think she was thinking at this time? And there's just a blank, like mm-hmm. the guy, like there is no, like, what do you mean? What do I think she, <laughs> what do you mean? she was like, thinking? Uh, uh, yeah, like he just can't even, like, he can't even come up with something you know, which is very different from, you know, when you're working with a client in private practice or clinical work where you go, well, let's talk about sort of feelings and I'll bring out like the feeling wheel, which is a really great tool yep. to use. Yep. But then they can go, oh, this is what I'm feeling. And they can kind of piece it together as opposed to somebody that's like, oh no, that, that part of their brain is not firing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the avoidant piece, you know, when I hear that, I think, well, that kind of makes sense if if we're looking at like who they're choosing to be around in their lives, if they're not super comfortable with other adults that they might find a little uh, intimidating and it's or easier, challenging or yeah, challenging yeah. and it's easier to just, you know, go hang out with a teen and not feel as intimidated by that. Yeah. It's, it's a way it's a positioning for power. So I'm not going to put myself around people that might have a different opinion of yeah. me or that I have to engage in sort of peer to peer age appropriate relationships. I'm going to go where the power differential is really significantly. A, there's a contrast there. Exactly. So let's talk about typologies real quick before we take a break. So um, there is a group of researchers who broke down typologies of solicitation offenders. The first typology is called circumstantial under socialized. So this group, the hallmarks of them is that they have poor social and interpersonal relationships. They have their own poor emotional control and tend to be really needy is how they were described. And they are more opportunistic in their offense. So um, maybe they're in a group online about, you know, 
whatever they they love a tv show and maybe there's a younger person in that group and so it's sort of an opportunity and they weren't necessarily out seeking it but there they were and they start chatting this person up um they will typically contact and meet their victim in the first day so they in the first 24 hours between contact and hey let's meet up so this is a a very quick offender and i think that speaks to the the opportunistic piece um their level of poor social interactions also tend to allow them to focus on the younger end of the spectrum of victims and they're willing to travel short distances, maybe a 30-minute drive from their residence in order to meet their victim. And a lot of them believe that they have a positive and caring relationship with their victims and then continue to contact them afterwards. So there will be like some sort of online relationship after the, the contact offense happens or they continue to see them in person. So that's our circumstantial under socialized. The second typology, and there are three, is the rebound persistent. They actually tend to have fairly stable relationships in their life, but they act out due to perceiving problems in their relationship, almost like this revenge or I'm not getting what I need here, so I'm entitled to go get it there. And I'm going to go into a completely inappropriate illegal agent appropriate i that's that is my that's so like what we call a primitive defense mechanism completely primitive yes definitely um they will utilize the internet and social media chats to interact and establish a relationship with a minor they are very need driven um and they're their planning is relatively limited. Um, so they are willing to engage in a chat for more than 24 hours in, in order to develop that trust with the victim that we talked about and have a better understanding of that victim's circumstances. And they will travel up to two hours in order to meet their victim. That blows my mind that they've got it down. Right. Isn't that cool? To the travel distance. I kind of love that part of the study. Um and they will have like limited contact with their victim after the initial encounter. So it's sort of this one and done. Uh, maybe I should think about that now that I'm on my two hour drive home, you know, kind of got it out of their system sort of thing. Because right. this is the guy in the middle. Um, and then there's the sexually compulsive typology. So their relationships with others tend to be very superficial. They likely have really good organization and planning skills and are highly sexual, highly need-driven. Um, this is somebody that, you know, those risk factors of sexually sexual compulsion would, would be really high when, you know, you and I were doing assessments. Um, they typically have pretty good verbal skills and a higher level of intelligence. They tend to engage and groom their victim over a long period of time in order to gain trust because they're thinking long game. I want to gain trust. I want to gain power so that they don't turn me in or, you know, I, I can make sure this stays a secret. Um, they will travel long distances over two hours to meet their victim and they will continually engage in meeting underage minors 
it, like returning to that same victim if they deem the risk as safe and if they're comfortable with the level of control that they have over that victim. So they're constantly assessing, you know, is this safe? And do I think she's about to tell her parents, okay, disengage? Um, or do I still have her under my control where I can just victimize over and over again? Wow. Yeah. A lot of thought. Yeah, a lot of thought. Okay, folks, we are back. Uh, we're going into the latter half of this episode, and we are going to both collaborate on our way through this next concept. As you're nodding your head vigor- As I'm vigorously. Nodding, yes, you're going to help <laughs> me, right? Because we're going to talk about entrapment, and Shiloh's going to open it up, and then we're going to process it a little bit because we're not attorneys. Yeah, we're gonna. Um, we're not attorneys, but we. But play we both have had television. our experience with it in working with offenders, right? <laughs> well, so not I heard ent- this a lot. I haven't <laughs> entrapped anybody. We've talked about entrapment with our people. You haven't entrapped anybody. I haven't been entrapped, um, unless this is your long game way of entrapping me. Um, <laughs> no, I just I would hear this over and over again, and I knew it was you know, a cognitive distortion of clients of talking about how their solicitation offense was entrapment because so many times they were busted because they were writing back and forth to a law enforcement officer. And, you know, I told them, I said, it was so funny because in treatment, you know, we, you build And we're going to talk about this at the end, but you build like the safety plan and interventions and prevention measures to never reoffend again. And I'm like, you guys, if you just put a piece of paper on your damn computer that says, I might be chatting with an undercover agent, just don't do it. Like that should be such a deterrent for you. You don't know who's on the other end. Just like we tell like our kids, right? Like, or whomever, you don't know who you are talking to. Yeah. I mean, but that, and that, and that ties back to our previous episode where we're talking about exactly what you said, cognitive distortions and the role of fantasy, because you want to believe that, you know, the perpetrator's fantasy is that the person on the other end is actually an underage yes. victim. Yeah. That's their fantasy. But the reality is you don't know, you might have one of these uh, guys or gals from um, perverted justice, you know, yeah, that's and that, on the other end. that pull for fantasy is so strong that it will override your judgment. <laughs> so, you know, even though I was saying like, here's how easy it is to do guys, I knew it was like, no, okay, clearly they need more planning than this. But but a lot of them would say it was, you know, it was entrapment. And if they hadn't reached out to me, um, you know, I, I would have never done this. And so I know it always got my wheels spinning. I knew there weren't this many convictions with, you know, possibly entrapment happening. I also didn't have a good comeback for them or explanation like, well, it's not entrapment because of this, Um, because I didn't really know the ins and outs. I never worked investigations or as a detective. So, you know, I was mostly responding to crimes. I wasn't setting up sting operations. So I didn't have real like detailed savvy knowledge of that to where I had to like testify against that in court or anything. Um, But I just always thought, okay, the government's doing it the way they're supposed to be doing it. Otherwise, this person wouldn't have been convicted. So, um, so we got some information from our friend, Nick over at getting off podcast. We asked him about Yay. entrapment. Yeah. I think, you know, obviously I think we they're... need to have them on. I think we need to have, maybe if we could, they can jump on for this week's behind the couch. Yeah. I think it, be helpful. It, it would be 
good. I think, um, you know, there's always state versus federal versions of things too. So we're going to tread lightly here. Um, but is there any particular place you wanted to start? Well, so like what I want to give, ex- I'm going to give examples. I mean, cause I, you know, we got the verbiage on what it means and, um, I went to nolo.com, which is a sort of a, a criminal defense attorney clearing site. You know, it's very slick. Uh, you know, you can live chat. They'll, you know, you'll basically be hooked up with an attorney for anything. But, you know, it, this is this sort of explains it for me, but not in terms of, uh, you know, child sexual endangerment. But this is a great differentiation, I think. So we're going to do two case examples, and I'm just going to read them, and I'll give them credit. and. You know, okay, I'm going to give him cool. credit. So Marianne is charged with selling illegal drugs to an undercover police officer. She testifies that the drugs were for, for her personal use and that the reason she sold them to the officer at the party is that the officer falsely said that she wanted some drugs for her mom who was in a lot of pain. So according to Marianne, the officer even assured her that she wasn't a cop and wasn't setting her up. The police officer's actions do not amount to entrapment in this case. Police officers are allowed to tell lies, and the officer is allowed to give Marianne the opportunity to break the law, but the officer did not engage in extreme or overbearing behavior. So that's case example one, not entrapment. Okay? So it, the key aspect there is that government agents do not entrap defendants simply by offering them an opportunity to commit a crime. Exactly. Exactly. So going further, this case example two, Marianne is charged with selling illegal drugs to an undercover officer. Marianne testifies the drugs were more for my personal use. And for nearly two weeks, the undercover, undercover, I can't even talk today. The undercover officer stopped by my apartment and pleaded with me to sell her some of my stash because her mom was extremely sick and needed the drugs for pain relief. I kept refusing. When the officer told me that the drugs would allow her mom to be comfortable for the few days that she had left to live, I broke down and sold her some drugs. She immediately arrested me. The undercover agent's repeated entreaties and lies are sufficiently extreme to constitute entrapment and result in a not guilty verdict. Yeah, that one just feels way icky, right? I mean, hearing that. Yeah, it story, still feels like, gross. Yeah. You, um, and actually, more and, people and, that will buy drugs. You don't have to go to that extreme for one person. Right. And I should also say that at least in the US, for all the problems we have in our legal system, at least that is very clear. Whereas in other countries, it's not. There was a really very sad case in Israel um, several years ago where the owner of a cannabis, uh, medical cannabis outlet, made very, very strict rules. You can only sell it for this. And this woman kept coming in saying, my pain, my pain, the doctor, you know, I'm dying of cancer. And the guy kept saying, no, 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 no. The woman kept coming in and looking more and more weak and like looking more and more pale. And he finally feels sorry for her and sells her additional cannabis beyond what she was licensed to have and immediately is swarmed and he's arrested and he's put away for years. And so, you know, we here we have the concept that coercion was involved by the behaviors that this cop engaged in. Right, right. I remember there was a... There's a book on this. It's written by an FBI agent. I will find it and I will put it in the show notes. And 
you and I, Scott, actually had kind of a a professional tie to this, but there was this FBI agent who wrote the book. He actually went undercover with NAMBLA that we spoke of in our previous episodes and would like go to their conventions and things like that. And he, as part of the FBI, set up where they were going to have a cruise that would leave Los Angeles and it was going to Mexico. And the idea was that they were going to go there to have sex with underage boys. And when all of these NAMBLA members got on the boat, they then arrested all of them because it was mm. like this, you know, intent to commit be engaged in like, yeah. yeah, sex tourism type thing. Um, but I remember hearing the word entrapment about that. But all they did, they created this opportunity. They didn't like coerce people to sign up and to get on the boat and things like that. They created this very elaborate And I think that's the distinction there is when we talk about entrapment and why it's so frustrating when you're working with a perpetrator or an alleged perpetrator who keeps claiming that they were entrapped is that the examples I gave about this is like, how would you have the proposed fake child engaging in coercive behaviors that would be successful in making someone engage in this behavior, it almost like it's almost too fantastic to try and even. Right. Like Unless even, it's to catch a predator. <laughs> well, I mean, even to catch a predator, like, you know, were they insisting, I mean, as many, as many problems as I have with it, were they saying, was the, were they saying, no, you got to come over. You got to come over. I want to do this. I want to do this. No. They were just leaving it open. You know, they let the people walk into the trap. Yeah. I just don't necessarily think we needed to make a a live TV show about it. Yeah. Yeah. The, the other thing that Nick pointed out when we reached out to him is that it's the entrapment defense. It is an actual defense and it's what they call an affirmative defense. So it means in order to use that defense, you have to admit that you did the crime. So he said, it's very much like like self-defense, that's an affirmative defense. Yes, I shot this person because they were trying to They were trying me. to kill you. Right. So entrapment would be, yes, I asked this underage person to have sex with me, but, and then that, no, nothing sounds good after that, but. Yeah, there's, <laughs> I, I'm sorry. How do you recover from that? It's like you've right. already lost. I mean, once again, going back to this is like the least sympathetic crime you can commit. I mean, there is none. It doesn't exist at all, basically. Exactly. Yeah. So it being an affirmative defense makes it tricky in its use for defendants, I think is what he's saying, as well as it's just a hard defense to meet because usually the, um, the law enforcement entity can say, look, we were simply just presenting an opportunity here and they took it. So, and lots, you know, many, many horrific offenders are caught because opportunity is presenting itself with these proactive stings and investigations. Um, And I think, you know, at the end of the day, they're putting people behind bars that have just been committing crimes like crazy. You know, even these guys that we're talking about right now, very few of them have a documented criminal history, but right. then they get arrested and they're like, yeah, I've done this, this, and this. Um, so they're, they're sliding under the radar for a really long time. Wow. 
Anything else on entrapment? You think that's good? So, well, what is it? There's a great quote that we that comes from that site also is judges expect people to resist any ordinary temptation to violate the law. An entrapment defense arises when government agents resort to repugnant behavior, such as the use of threats, harassment, fraud, or even flattery to induce defendants to commit crimes. Now, that is something I did not catch mm-hmm. on the first read-through, is that use of the word flattery. Yeah. And now that would be, you know, given that I would fall for that one every time. I know. I'm like such a, I'm so vain. <laughs> what? It's like, if, if you tell me my skin's good, I'll, you know, <laughs> fall in anywhere. Eh, eh, okay. <laughs> like, edit, edit, edit. I'm sorry. I cut but that, no, that's just interesting. Like the idea of flattery, then that kind of makes me want to go back and look at the transcripts right. of the chats, which I think are available. A lot of those things are available online now. Certainly you Google any of the people that were caught on to catch a printer, you can, you know, in the same Google search, you click on their name and you will find the court documents. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what the um, criteria is that you have to meet for that flattery piece. That's interesting. Wouldn't yeah, like well, I would a, think it would, an attorney ever argued that that would just be an interesting argument to hear. Right. And I was wondering also, and this is something maybe Nick and Jessica can, can educate us on is like, does it vary from state to state? Sure. Sure. Right. I mean, it's going to look, and I mean, certainly we all know it's going to, things are going to vary from judge to judge because there are some, I mean, there are some terrible examples that have happened in the last couple of years of uh, contact offense ministers in Midwestern states that have just committed terrible crimes and judges have gone like, oh, well, he's a good Christian man. Uh, you know, this was just a, a mistake. He'll, yeah. like, that's like infuriating to me as, as I'm sure it is to a lot of other people. Right. Because I'm sure being a good Christian man was a whole part of the grooming. Exactly. Well, Charade, especially if they're so. a youth pastor, you know, yeah. which yeah. unfortunately that's one of the things that we see. And they do talk about, you know, when you get into looking at these examples is that, you know, like you said, I think in the first episode of, of this is talking about how if they are pedophilically oriented, there's a tendency to find themselves in careers that will give right. them some kind of access, access to potential to victims. victims. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So let's wrap this up and talking just sort of the psychology of internet offenders as a whole, um, a little bit about what we find with them that are things that, um, we would work on in treatment. So what are, what are some deficits? What would we focus on? And I think one is again, going back to cognitive distortions, which you have laid out for us beautifully before is just the minimization, the huge amount of disconnect in regards to their role in the crime. Right. And I I think this stems back to a lot of what we're talking about, somebody being behind their keyboard and doing this at a distance that is also contributing to their mental gymnastics of not feeling as responsible. You know, I didn't take those pictures. They look like they are enjoying whatever they're doing in these pictures. I didn't download anything violent. I, I'm, you know, I'm not the bad guy here that did anything. I didn't hurt a child, um, especially when we're just talking about the child sexual abuse images. Um, a lack of victim empathy. This one has always been so fascinating to me because there tends to be this lack of empathy, yet it is actually not statistically correlated with reoffense. This is like one of those things that 
you, we address it in treatment because I think it just feels incredibly important to address and you can get through to some people with it. But statistically, it's actually not, if someone has low or low empathy for their victims, they're not any more likely to reoffend, which is just fascinating. I'm trying, I, I have my like resting scowl face on right yeah. now because I'm trying yeah. to figure that out. Yeah. We, it just, it doesn't correlate with all the statistics that we run and the people who reoffend. that is not a common That's fascinating. Fac- risk factor with them. Um, but when there is a lack of empathy there, this is really exacerbated by online offenses because there's no, to them, there's no real um, quote unquote real or identifiable victim for them. Um, they also don't understand sort of the supply and demand of child sexual abuse images that these probably wouldn't be produced as much as they are if there was not a market for it and that it's they are like contributing the, to that market. Yeah. It's kind of like the drug trade. People get all up and like, you know, about how bad the drug market is. And it always comes down to is like, well, if, you know, yuppies would stop doing cocaine yeah. Probably shut down the market. Probably. But they're, but they're not going to. <laughs> right. They haven't stopped for the last 40 years. So that's why we have a constant flow of cocaine into this country. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, you know, I, I've just through conversations with lots of offenders, they don't think of the long term effects on these children that are either you know, like solicitation offenses, like we're talking about, or, um, the children that are in the sexual abuse images. And that has to be sort of on the characterological spectrum there, you know, that lack of empathy of like empathy also contains the concept of being able to look down the road. Right. This person is feeling this way at this time. How are they going to feel a week, a month, a year, 10 years from, the death of a loved one, the end of a job, the end of a, you know, a, a horrible accident, the, the violence I'm about to perpetrate on them. There's just, that doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting. I mean, all of this is, it's probably why I did it for so long. <laughs> um, so we also find that there is one of the biggest risk factors is intimacy deficits. So there is the lack of either the ability to maintain stable relationships and intimate relationships in their life, um, or it's the crime happens in a time period where they are without relationships. So relationships are huge. You know, when we were doing assessments, we're talking about their history. We're talking about whether or not they're in a relationship um, at the time the offense occurred or in the future or how much history they have with that. And you find a lot of, excuse me, and you find a lot of low expectations of even initiating or maintaining age-appropriate relationships with these individuals. So maybe because of the avoidant personality stuff we talked about before, um, maybe because of more antisocial or narcissistic reasons that that's just not interesting to them. Um, But a lot of them find that when they're lonely, that their coping mechanism is either looking at child sexual abuse images or 
engaging with people online. Yeah, I will say the the last client I had in private practice who realized he was in trouble mm-hmm. with he had been reported somebody had flagged his posts online and he is the luckiest person in the world because the the feds never got it you know he did, he was never adjudicated he actually went to a forensic evaluator who then said hey you need treatment and right. so you know and he didn't engage in the behavior past that point which right. allowed me to be able to provide him with services because here in California we have a rather draconian law where you know if someone admits to us in the midst of uh therapy that they're viewing those images we are ethically and where we're legally bound, actually. I think the ethics and the morality is is somewhat questionable because how are we going to actually provide accurate uh, and, and therapeutic treatment if right. we can't allow them but to But it's be mandatory reporting for It's us. mandatory reporting, exactly. But this guy reflected exactly what you're talking about is that when we got it down to looking at a calendar that he had made about when he was looking at those images and when he was posting them, it always came down to massive periods of stress in his life. And that was his coping mechanism. Right. And it got down, we got to the point where it was like, oh yeah, no, I haven't had, I don't even think about that because things are going great. I mean, I don't think that's necessarily across the board for all of these offenders, but I thought in that case, it was very interesting. Well, it's, it's huge because that, if if I were to find that out about a client, especially in the f- assessment phase, then I'm like, oh, great. Now I know one of our treatment goals and we are going to target and work on their coping skills like nothing else because we want to replace that problematic behavior with other ways of coping. And so that, you know, that's the argument I make for sex offender treatment being a worthy cause is because you can identify these risk factors with individuals that can be changed with treatment. Um, But yeah, it it really fits in with this lack of um, intimacy in a person's life. Also, a lot of them report that the images sort of represent a more accepting or less intimidating partner. And so it's this sort of pseudo substitute for having intimacy in their life. Um, also, second thing that we find, which actually speaks back probably to um, to what we were just talking about in coping skills is that a lot of these individuals are emotionally dysregulated. Yeah. So lack of control when they have really strong negative moods, um, using child pornography and masturbation as mood um, alleviating coping skills and that helps them develop some sort of uh, perceived sense of control when using the internet. And so there, and we've talked about before, I mean, there's really young individuals who learn to do this from such a young age, some who are doing it as like self-soothing methods almost because of trauma in their life. And some of the people I've worked with that started looking at child pornography when they were nine years old. And they were looking at peers, um, but they kept going back to that as they got older as one of their coping mechanisms because it had worked when they were younger. All right. Yeah. Let's, um, I want to quickly just talk about assessment and treatment. Um, So everyone's fear is the question, will an online offender turn into a contact offender offending against a child in real life? Um, That is still very much a 
question that is being researched as we spoke about in previous episodes. When I left doing this work full-time in 2017, um, there was just barely the publication of an assessment tool that was just looking at risk assessment for child pornography offenders. It's called the Seaport, um, and it was developed by Michael Cito, who is huge in this area of research. He's out of Canada. Um, his partner or wife, I don't know if they're married, um, is Dr. Meredith Chivers, and she is just this phenomenal researcher in Canada. She's the director of the sexuality and gender lab at uh, Queens University in Ontario. They're just such an awesome couple. <laughs> I've seen both of them present and they just run like the most amazing studies. And I always think, I wish I could have been a student of theirs, but yeah, he finally, after all these years developed an assessment tool that was just specifically to look at reoffense rates and, um, risk for these guys because when you and I were doing it, we didn't have one for no. anyone that had non-contact offenses. It was all normed on rapist and child molesters. And we had nothing for these online offenders. Um, we were doing our best with what we had, but really, you know, now is the time that this this study is finally or this assessment tool is finally published, which is great. Um, we would also use the ABLE assessment of sexual interest. Do you remember the ABLE? Oh, yeah. I still have a copy of it here. Oh, so this helped us guide treatment and diagnoses to see what age group that people were interested in when we looked at sex offenders. Um, so essentially, it's a computerized test where they are rating their level of sexual interest in oh, the I'm completely images. Wrong. I was I have this copy of the stable, not gotcha. the able. The able with able was the computer one. Yes, with all Remember the direct, they saw the, all the images and would click on. Okay, yeah, yeah. So they would rate their sexual interest. Um, and actually, the test is not measuring what they think it's measuring. It's not measuring right. the rating scale that they're giving. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but well, it's measuring law and order, something else. SVU already revealed it years ago. <laughs> oh, great, awesome. Scott. Now everyone has a reference. Well, they, well, then they're going to have to go through, what, 20 <laughs> oh. seasons of the show to figure out? Oh, I'm sure some of our fans will. No, well, they probably will. Um, but it's, it's a very, it's a very interesting test. I hope they've updated it since I left, but probably not. Um, but basically it, it, it spits out um, a score telling you breaking down like what age range, what gender they're most attracted to. Um, it's it's very, very helpful in looking at like, are we dealing with a pedophile here or a hebophile or not? Um, so there, there's just a lot of different measures that we were using in assessment. Um, but... I think it's really interesting to look at recidivism rates and like will these people continue to reoffend? And actually, those that look at child sexual abuse images under the giant umbrella of all the sex offenses in this world, they really have the lowest reoffense rates. It's between, like, depending on the study, between 1.6 and 7% of them will actually reoffend in another child pornography crime. Um, so it's it's pretty low, um, especially compared to other offenses. If you look at um, those that have child sexual abuse images, the rate of them committing a contact offense is about 2 to 4%. Um, as compared to non-internet offenders, that's 13% reoffense rate. So 
it's it's very small. These, for whatever reason, whether they learn their lesson, whether the the compulsions aren't as strong as other individuals, which I would argue against, because I mean it. It was really a lot of times like treating porn addiction. It was really hard. Yeah. Um, for whatever reason, their their reoffense rates are the lowest of all types of sex offenders. Um, we don't know too much about or at least I don't, there might be better numbers now that I couldn't find, but solicitation offenders, we just, I I don't have exact numbers on those, but, but yeah, they, they basically are, um, you know, when they come out of prison and they come to a therapy setting, like where Scott and I worked, we are working very closely with probation and parole. Um, they're getting polygraphs done. They're doing group therapy. They're doing individual therapy. Um, and then there's a lot, if they have an end date to where they're getting off of parole or probation, we're doing a lot of work with them on their, what we call a safety plan. So what are you, what knowledge are you taking with you that you've learned from treatment that you have to put into place now? And it's a lot of work. I mean, they start working on that within the first year they're in therapy and by the time three or five or 10 years have gone by, they better have that down pretty well. So, but yeah, uh, I think that pretty much wraps it up for our series. I mean, it, it was a lot, but um, I, I'm glad that we decided to break it down into three for people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a lot of information, but for anybody that wants to do a deep dive on this particular subject, I think it's helpful. Um especially, you know, more so you than me. I mean, I certainly have a clinical perspective on these things, but, you know, you did this for over a decade and I think it's important. Um, And I love also how you frame that this is what I did for a decade and there's even more information coming out. And, you know, once again, that's just an illustration on that's sort of an ethical um, responsibility of all of us in the mental health field to stay on top of what the latest research is. Because there's, you know, it, it changes. This is a soft field in many ways. And and because it's also, but it's science because we are, you know, science changes because there's new data. You know, our understanding know. of what's going on is when we take in new data. And when we don't take in new data, that's, that's a problem. Yeah, I was... Uh- that's another reason I'm pissed at COVID because actually this year I was, I took time off of my regular job to go to the California's um, basically like annual sex offender conference to get all the updates on everything. Cause I haven't been in about three years. Um, but obviously that got yeah. rescheduled. And you know where I was going to go, I have not been in over 10 years, but I, for about three years in a row, I went to what's called quad S, which is, the Society for the Scientific Study of Sexuality. And it's a small um, psychological convention, but it's on a yearly basis. And it has the most fascinating studies on all aspects of sexuality. And I mean, it's for one thing, it's it's amazing because you go and it's there, it's all psychologists who come from such diverse backgrounds and are just talking about sexuality without squeamishness and without judgment and without sort of 
these sort of culturally bound perspectives. Yes. Incredibly <laughs> refreshing and educational. And it's not for everybody. I mean, for one, I mean, I remember the first time I went, there are some things I was going, wow, I'm getting really triggered here. I had to sit down mm-hmm. and process it with a, with a mentor. But um, yeah, I mean, there's some great stuff out there uh, for people. Didn't you go to Puerto Rico one year for it? Yeah, that was amazing. Oh, I do remember that. That was yeah. amazing. There you know, was a, a, a psychologist from NYU Actually, she was not a psychologist that she had when she was finishing her dissertation. And she did the most fascinating study on female sex workers and how they were perceived. And if they build themselves as having a PhD, they could make more money. Oh, yeah. It was all broken down by not only what they presented as their educational level, but also there was an intersection with their age, their uh, racial background, their verbal skills. I mean, it's just a fascinating, like whoever, like so Jules came up with the idea for this study. And I was like, this is amazing. This is just amazing. Well, I, it, this is where all, this is like my end note. I wasn't going to talk about this because I felt like we're running out of time, but there is something to speaking to an international crowd that felt um, like they were willing to entertain more ideas around sex that's came right. out wrong. That's you know what I mean. <laughs> well, because I mean that's that's one of the things we we've, we've kind of touched on is yeah. that you know America, for all of its you know boo rah um, cowboy mentality, is very puritanical. Yes, when it comes to sex. Thank you. Very, so, very puritanical. Not now. Certainly, there are some areas in the world that are very yeah. very bad environments for for LGBTQIA. Um, communities. But for the most part, like, you know, Europe is like, what is wrong with you guys? (laughs) Well, and so the student of mine, when I was sort of towards the end of doing this work full time. So when, when child pornography offenders are in treatment, they are, they, they have to work back towards getting like their their computer use and their internet use back, right? So that's given as a privilege when they can be monitored appropriately and they're doing well in treatment. But at no time, their actual court order says that they cannot possess any type of pornography, legal pornography included. And this, the student and I were talking about, so we are going to give them nothing. And then the second they're off probation, they're going to have access to all of this unmonitored. Exactly. How ridiculous is that? Instead well, that's of them, right? That's basically cognitive behavioral training, right? There is, and you know, we and we had a colleague that was somewhat controversial himself, but he would talk about with his male clients. He would say, "This is appropriate pornography. This is age appropriate." Right. No. Right. And we thought, wouldn't it be better for them to sort of start stepping back into that realm while in therapy so they can say, hey, I went to the site this week and it really triggered me. I wanted to look at stuff. How do I deal with that? You exactly. know, I want to look at illegal stuff. So we actually, we presented a paper in Portugal on it, the International Association for the Treatment of Sex Offenders about utilization of pornography while this person is in treatment. And it was very well received. Not that people were like, oh yeah, let's do it. But oh my gosh, I want to hear more about this. Yeah, at least opening up to that discussion. Totally. Where if we talked about it at our job or in our you know, California circles, it was like, oh, what are you talking about? Exactly. <laughs> so very I love, I, yeah, thanks COVID. I miss my international conferences and other conferences, but 
We'll get back there. All right. Thanks, Scott. This was sure. fun. This was fun. <laughs> um, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. As you saw from our social media posts, we now have challenge coins. Yep. Uh, so for those of you through the end of the month, July 31st of 2020, if you sign up for our Patreon, you get a challenge you coin. get a coin. Plus then... some extra swag. Yes. Um, we are but they'll hoping... be for sale after that. We're hoping to start a whole thing within the true crime podcast community to generate these as collector's items. It's a ton of fun. We do it in the law enforcement world and the military does it as well. So, um, yeah, like we're very and they're excited beautiful. about that. We're, we're very happy with how they turned yeah, out. They turned so out we will have them up on our website for sale um, next month. All right, guys, take care. Next time will be our 50th episode. And we will see you then on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, Bye. folks. Stay safe. <laughs>